want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. The device as a service market is expected to surpass $190 billion by 2026, according to Market Research Future. That's a compound annual growth rate of 55.8%. Acer is at the forefront of that wave. And today's guest, Mylene Chappé, launched and now runs Acer's DOS business for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. It's hard enough to launch a subscription startup on your own, Doing it inside a large manufacturer adds a whole level of complexity. In today's conversation, Mylene shares the challenges she faced in launching the business, how she's transformed the culture to one of access, not ownership, and the right kind of team to support subscription innovation in manufacturing. Mylene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you. I want to jump right in and understand how you came to run the device as a service subscription business for Acer. I think at that time, roughly four years ago, we saw a lot of people and partners of us talking about device as a service. This is the next big thing that's coming. That's the market expectation. It's going to be really, really big. We actually asked ourselves, what is that? Everyone's talking about it, but it was not that there was a definition of what that actually was. Everyone said, okay, device as a service. In the US, they said, when you were talking to Americans, they were saying, ah, desktop as a service, so virtual desktop. So also some different wordings in the US and in Europe. And then it was like, okay, what is device as a service? Yeah, it's something like car leasing, but then you have petrol included. Someone else said, no, it's the entire IT infrastructure as a service in a leasing model. Some other said, no, it's that you can have access to your entire IT on a flexible model and can cancel your subscription every month. So it was really the first point, first understanding and talking to a lot of people. And everyone said, yes, this is coming, but not being very specific and concrete what we were actually talking about. So the first couple of weeks, months I spent on talking with different industries from industries like software that were very advanced already, seeing the um, example of Adobe that went through this change and transformation from transactional sales into full subscriptions and SaaS to traditional banks that do leasing or equipment finance for some time already. And everyone had a bit of a different take on it, what it would be. So we had to define for ourselves what we actually want to achieve as a company, but even more so, what are customers looking for? What is driving this trend? And we came to a couple of conclusions. We said, in the past, every machine that was delivered to a customer would need some manual touch on it. So uploading up some software, some settings, so that people could actually start working on the machine. But with cloud adoption, a lot of those things can be done remotely. 
a partner who delivers the service doesn't need to touch the device anymore. So we said, okay, there is a big part that even though we're talking about PCs as a service or devices as a service, there is a big part that is software that empowers or really makes the value proposition to the end customer. So we said, okay, we need, actually we need the hardware, but we also need software so that we can really deliver a service to the end customers that they can work. And what else do they need? They don't want that a product or hardware fails. So we need some more managed services around. So for us, we define device as a service as a combination of hardware, software, and services. Could be from installation to data wiping at the end of the use, all that together in a subscription on a monthly or a quarterly basis. I mean, it sounds like when you were tapped to lead this, there was a lot of clarifying that you had to do before you even started to prepare for the business. A lot of agreements and definitions that had to be established. How did they decide that you would be the right person to lead this? What was your journey? As you pointed out, it's a very new space. So what made you qualified to lead the charge? I think there was a lot of luck in the game, but I always said after being with the company for by now almost 15 years, I covered different roles in the company, a lot on project management, built up different departments. But what all those had in common, that it was always cross-functional, that it was not specialized into one department. And that really, really helped me to connect the dots. It has an implication on finance. It has an implication on IT. It has an implication on marketing. And it has an implication on sales. I think I expressed that what I'm interested in is innovation and bringing, creating new things. I think that's what, what it was in the past to create new teams and new departments. Um, and with that, it got even one step further to create a totally new business like a startup within the corporation. So something that I've seen at some large organizations like Acer, when they introduce subscription, is they bring in an outsider who has some subscription experience. Your path is different. Your strength is not like you knew the organization well, you had cross-functional expertise with this particular company. You knew players, you have credibility. If you were giving advice to some other large company that was going to go into device as a service kind of a business, can it be done by an outsider? Or do you think it's a better choice to look for somebody that has this internal credibility and experience, even if they don't have the deep subscription expertise? I think it's about is someone eager to build a new business and curious enough? For sure, the internal connections help, but I can also see someone coming in from external that is qualified to build fast connections. I think it definitely needs to be a networker because it drills down from strategic level to very operational level when you actually execute. And I think strong project management skills. And I think at that time, we were at a different stage than we're today. If I look at the market today, I think people have a bit more understanding of what subscription is all about. And you can maybe also find the talent in the market, even though the market is not so big yet. But at that time, it was not that we had that we could go to one consulting firm and say, OK, can you please give me the expertise? There were expertise in different areas. It was talking to banks. Yes, they have a very strong expertise of 25 years on the leasing part. But having this vision that it 
needs to be digital, that it needs to be very customer focused, that it needs to be driven by the cloud. Each of the also external partners could only deliver expertise in one field. So it had to be brought together. That's interesting. I like how you're bringing the innovation, networking, project management as being really important core skills, especially for an organization where you're writing your own playbook, where you don't say, we're going to be like Netflix, except we're going to have sports instead of comedies or whatever. It's a big change. Can you describe the device as a service business today for Acer, kind of just to give listeners a sense of how how big it is, how far you've come in the last four years, what kind of role it plays for the organization in EMEA or even globally? Yeah, I think we've seen, we started with some test countries where we launched a online platform where targeted at B2B customers, so self-service, where they could basically like Lego bricks, design their own solution. Okay, I want to have a premium service. I want to have that hardware. I actually want to have that software with it. And then the entire checkout would be digital. So that means signing it digital because it goes into all the regulations of a leasing contract, basically, once it's going into the banks, etc. So we built this entire process and we launched that in several countries. And that's really where we see, okay, that's targeted as SMBs. And we expected B2B customers being ready for that much digitalization. One of the learnings we had, it still needs a sales-led approach. So they want are looking for human interaction. They need consulting during the sales. So with that, also the experience seeing, okay, what kind of customers are actually looking for the solutions and which companies are also maybe already more cloud-driven. We pivoted, have besides the pure device as a service as we envisioned it in the beginning, we launched, we call it Acer Smart Financing model, also with our partners together, where we put installation services in, but delivered by our partners towards the end customers. So amplifying basically the platform, a bit less digital than we envisioned it in the beginning, but more consultative, but then, of course, also looking at bigger tickets than the really self-service online platform. So at this point, is that where most of your relationships are? I don't want to say leasing first, but financially driven as opposed to, obviously, I'm a subscription person. There's a lot of benefits to a SaaS or an as-a-service model beyond the way that it's paid and recognized. But is that, do you feel like that's kind of been the tip of the spear in terms of what gets large organizations to start this? It's a big transformation to move to this kind of model. I think we're seeing different drivers. We're for sure seeing the macroeconomic environment, importance of cash. So there is a financial part of it. And that is actually resonating very well. We as a company, we're, we clearly commit to the ESG goals by being net zero by 2050 and actually bringing in circular economy models where we take back the goods at the end of the lifetime, where today the majority of PC hardware ends up in landfill, taking that ownership as a vendor and saying, we actually take care of the end of life, whether that is a second life or proper recycling, and therefore also giving our customers the confidence that with those solutions, 
they are actually doing the right thing in terms of sustainability and ESG. So I think those are the two things, like really the traditional leading benefits or CapEx to OPEX, the sustainability part, but then also the ease of use. Why should I, IT resources are so limited in the market. Why should I have a part of my team actually looking after my internal IT assets if I could have that covered by a service and actually move them onto projects that are maybe more interesting for them and where they can really drive value for the company. It's so interesting. I mean, I mean, I remember a lot of these same issues coming up just with SaaS, with software as a service, where we as marketers had to get really clear on which benefit is actually going to drive acquisition because the acquisition required to change in thinking. And in some organizations, it was about cash management. Sometimes it was actually about focus or convenience or something else. But how important it is to know which of the benefits, especially in early stages when you're doing something new, which ones are actually resonating. I'm especially interested in what you said about ESG, sustainability, circular economy. When I started working in subscription, it never occurred to me that that would be a benefit. But especially in the world of physical products, it becomes a really big valuable to say, oh, I can just give you all of the old hardware and feel at least, first of all, it's not my problem, but maybe you're actually going to do something better because you're more sophisticated and have more volume than we do, that that is actually a driving benefit, especially for organizations that have a public ESG commitment. We have the, as the ESG commitment that we have, but also as the only vendor that we actually have our own service operations. So that really puts it all together. So we can be in control of this entire chain up to recycling. Yeah, and it was not the first thought that we had when we started. But coming back to your point, understanding what are the customer needs, it can be in the past, we had to position our products from a specs perspective. What kind of CPU do you have? What kind of storage is in there? What is the look and feel? And now it's getting much, much broader. In the beginning, it was like talking to the head of IT and he could select the product. Now, maybe one argument goes with the CFO, one argument goes with the CSR office. Some of the arguments rather go with the CEO. So it's really covering also the selling is becoming much more complex 360 degrees. That's really interesting, which probably helps though. I mean, it's more complex, but also IT can be really hard to sell to. And if the CSR team has some leverage, they might tip the scale in your favor. I guess it's more complicated, but it gives you more levers. I wanted to ask you, you're running EMEA and a lot of my guests on the show are, you know, I'm very US centric. I'm very provincial. You know, I try, but you know, I end up having a lot of American companies and American executives, which I'm, I'm happy to have the opportunity to hear your experience. And I'm interested, are there things that are different about operating in your region when you talk to your North American counterparts, your Asian counterparts, Latin American counterparts that are different that you have to think about or that somebody should think about if they're coming into Europe with subscription? I think from a European perspective, one of the most obvious ones are languages. Then even though we have the euro, it's still currencies as well. Then we have big markets that are maybe more similar to the US, like the UK, but that brought a lot of the Brexit brought a lot of challenges 
with it, especially when it's about shipping. How do we do a service? And then regulations. We have maybe European directions on regulations, but each and every country, especially when it goes into a part of the solution being finance, it goes into very local regulations and that needs very specialized lawyers that understand local regulations and how to how to interpret them and how to build solutions around it. So it's not that you can build a solution, a subscription in one country and then just scale. That's really interesting. I mean, it's a lot of regulation and the whole financial element that for many of your clients, it's really a financing play as something that's really important and you have the hard assets. One of my early guests was the person who runs for Hewlett Packard, their instant ink business, Anthony Napolitano, and talking about these kinds of issues and the additional level of complexity of hardware leasing or, you know, thinking about that as part of the overall package. And then he was here in North America, but the European additional regulations, additional languages, additional currencies, it really is complicated. Yeah. And I think it's about defining which markets to go first, which kind of cultures to navigate first, and also on top of the complexity that comes from regulations. And I think there is also different cultural readiness. Maybe some markets are still more looking for ownership rather than usership, where the possession of goods is, why should I pay for something that doesn't belong to me? Well, you need to have very different discussions than in another market that says, okay, I want to have as little as possible. And I'm already, I'm not interested in the ownership of the asset. When we're looking at markets there, it can be even in consumer markets. Looking into the Netherlands, there is a company called Swap Feeds in the consumer space, where a lot of people are just using bicycles as subscriptions. But if you do that as a person on a daily basis, also the assumption and hypothesis those people take into the business world are very different ones than going to some countries that still tend to own everything. Would you say, is it the Nordics that are the most subscription ready or UK or which areas do you think are more ready, both on the consumer side, I think you have perspective there and certainly on the B2B side? I think the UK is definitely ready. The Nordics from a cultural perspective as well, but the Nordics as a market are for markets that are fairly small, so adding a lot of complexity for the size of the market. But in general, I would say, yes, the North is maybe more ready than the South. I have a concept I talk about, a forever promise. And it's the idea of what it is that your best customers would say to their colleagues, to their friends, their peers about why they're loyal to you. We subscribe to Acer, DOS, because we're confident that they will always what? Something around continuous something. How would you describe that promise that you're making to them? I think it's a promise that we let them, allow them to focus on their work without having actually to worry about their IT infrastructure. It's almost like, why should I worry about the modem if I'm just interested that I have access to good internet connection? As you're growing... What has been most challenging as the leader of this subscription business inside a large, successful, manufacturing-led, services-led organization? I think a lot of, on the technical side, setup side, financial side, is 
project management and execution. The biggest challenge I find is culture and mindset shift. Coming from a history where it's about transactional sales, where it's a lot about product, where historically engineers led the company, and that is the pride where they come from, it's the product, it's not the business model. So actually adding a, not a product, this is where we defined innovation. Innovation was around the product. You build the greatest product. But then someone comes and says, okay, the product, yes, it's a must-have, but there's actually much more around it. And you actually need to know what the customer does with your product. It's And coming back from there and then saying to the local organizations, to sales, okay, how does your end customer use the product? What does he do with it? What are his biggest concerns? What are his needs? What kind of problems can you solve? When we see the market, there's hardware and all the services that are around it, and that this market is much bigger because that drives the value of the product. We need to get closer to understand what our customers really want. And if that is that I need to have a coffee every morning at 10 a.m. next to my laptop in order to function. (laughs) Yeah, that is really hard. It's funny. I've been working with subscription businesses for a very long time. And I think It's only in the last, I'm going to say the last five years that I became really aware of the cultural challenges to moving to subscription. It's not just the financial logic that says we're going to make more money, we're going to have more influence, recurring revenue gets a higher multiple, those kinds of things. It's people saying, but I came to this company because I build hardware. I'm an engineer and suddenly it's not the most important thing. And I'm wondering if I should go somewhere else. I mean, that's an issue. There's the logistics of how do we become customer-centric. We don't have a place to track this kind of data. We don't have a team that's responsible for it. There's this question. I, w- I was talking with a very large manufacturer this week. And tell me if this resonates for you. They, they're trying, this person is responsible for their nascent subscription business. And he said, we don't even have the right business development function to make a deal. If a digital player comes in, that's going to help us accelerate our subscription business. We don't have anybody to receive the money if they want to pay us for that. Or we just have to go through this, it's like a special project, it slows down. There's just no infrastructure for this way of, you know, doing it. And then finally, subscription revenue comes in in a very different way. That's why your customers love it, right? You pay a little bit at a time, but the numbers are very small at the beginning because ARR takes a little while to become impressive. There's that concept of swallowing the fish. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's four to six years. I think it's following the whale for all kind of hardware businesses because it's even more so. I love that. Swallowing the whale, (laughs) a new term. Yeah, because it is really hard for the company. And there's, like you said, there's the project management challenges, but there's also the change management, the emotional piece, the trust piece. Is this still a good place for me if suddenly we're valuing customer centricity more than we're valuing The hardware is just one piece of the solution. All of that. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm having conversations where it's about, okay, it's my margin today. This is where my KPIs are. I need to deliver this quarter revenue, this quarter margin. This is what I'm paid for. Emily, you're telling me that I should be interested about long customer relationships that will pay off in three, four, five years from now. And how do you incentivize me for that? What is my benefit today if I do that? These are your peers. Those are my 
sales. Yes. Your sales team. Yeah. So how do you handle that? Do you kind of go up to the top and look for some kind of an executive sponsor? Do you go kind of more peer wise over to the sales team and say, hey, we need to change compensation plans? What advice do you have? How do you do that? I think there is no either or I think it needs top management endorsement and full backup because it sometimes feels like bringing something new like that to the market and changing your organization, you feel like you're someone from the moon and they look at you and say, okay, you really haven't understood our business, what you're telling us. So you need this backup from top management to say, okay, this is the way forward. And also to experiment and to try things, how to make it work. But then it's as important as talking to the field forces and explaining and explaining again, it's the field of expertise. I'm in my world every day, but for them, it's just a part of their business. And maybe they see a presentation and they forget about it again, because till someone again knocks on their door and says, look, we really need to push that business till they've really understood. So I think we went in a couple of directions. We put in, yes, incentive plans and changed compensation schemes, but we also changed hiring processes or hiring profiles. So we looked for very different profiles when filling open roles with expertise, maybe not in the PC field, but in as a service fields. And that could be all kinds of services that could be software, but that could, could be even a car, but someone who's familiar with the concept of recurring revenue and how to sell it. Yeah, they are a different kind of person. It's also something that we haven't really talked about, but I'm guessing is an issue is when you sell hardware traditionally, right? If I buy a laptop, it's mine. And if I don't use most of the features, if I use it like a typewriter and all I do is use my word processing application and that's it, that's my problem because I've already paid for it. Even if I paid for a super powerful machine, if I'm subscribing to it and I'm not using any of the great features that you've invested in, I might say it's not worth it to me and I might cancel. So suddenly you have more responsibility for after sales, for the after sales relationship because they can leave. If you sell something outright and they don't like it, maybe the next time they buy, they won't buy from you, but you have time. So how do you think about that post-sales piece of the pie? Have you changed how that's done at Acer or specifically for your team? Yeah, what we really looked at with the capabilities that our service centers have to put different service packages together that allow for constant customer interactions. Already the monthly billing is one kind of interaction. Maybe the first thing that someone who isn't happy that he stops paying. Or if a product breaks down, if you bought it, you maybe put it in the drawer and you buy a new one but you would maybe stop paying a subscription if your product breaks. So we actually have a chance in that moment to solve that and to say, okay, what do you need? What do you actually use it for? Oh yeah, I gave a high-end device with the best service that was supposed to be for one of my data crunchers. I gave it to the receptionist. And the receptionist maybe just needs a very standard device. But having this conversation and then being able to adapt I think is really the power of subscription. Yeah. And you can see how they're using it, right? I mean, you can see, wow, this person has a very powerful computer, but they're not using it like a person with a powerful computer should be. 
I'm guessing you do this. Maybe we can raise that flag with our customer before they cancel, right? We'd say, hey, looks like you've got a really specialized machine with a somebody who's underutilizing it. Do you want to swap that out? Either we'll give you a lower grade machine or we'll give it to a different person. But people have to be trained to do that because at least in my experience, service centers are used to solving problems when the problem is brought to their attention as opposed to anticipating saying, wow, judging by how they're using this, they haven't complained yet, but that's a problem waiting to happen. My vision is becoming service centers, but at the same time, almost pre-sales. If you can do that proactively, the limitations on that is maybe another uniqueness to Europe that we're at the moment not yet allowed to use that data. Or what is personal data? What is with GDPR that we can? Technically, it would be feasible, but we cannot access that usage data. So I think as IoT evolves and we get actually more and more data about usage as well, maybe in ways that are anonymized, made available only to the customer so that the customer can make those decisions. This field, we're not there yet, but that's definitely my dream that we could basically see how you use the subscription and then based on that, make recommendations for the renewal. Or even before the renewal, just even to say, we see that 17% of your highest grade computers are being underutilized. It's the same issue, I think, with phone companies. You're not using your data plan. I love that when they call and say, can we downgrade you because you're not using it rather than waiting for me to realize, wow, I am completely overpaying. And I do see like Europe's always protected privacy much better than we do here. But there is a benefit to sharing your information. You can often get a better experience. So there is a trade-off. We talked a little bit about what you're hiring for you. You talked about the different culture that you need for sales. Other places where you need to hire differently? I think sales is definitely the biggest part. Then depending on the readiness and background of people, also certain management roles, if you need certain organizations to change more, it needs to have one missionary in each organization that really advocates the solution and says, okay, we need to do this and understands long-term vision to make the impossible possible because sometimes it feels like pulling a leg and the arm at the same time for, as you said, very little revenue in the short term. While it's much easier to maybe sell two containers full of PCs If that's a trade-off of your resource time, you say, if you don't really understand why it's so important doing this new business, you would always fall back to the old way of doing things. And the old way of doing things feeds the company. So it is important. We cannot neglect that core business is important while developing at the same time um, the future. That's almost the hardest time is when you're running two separate businesses with different approaches. Do you have time for like a quick speed round? Yes. First subscription you ever had? I think mobile phone. Your favorite subscription right now, business or personal? Spotify. Desktop, laptop, phone. Which do you use most? Phone. Your favorite European first subscription? I guess Spotify is probably a good example, but maybe one that we might not know about in the rest of the world. What I absolutely loved was diaper subscriptions when the kids were small. (laughs) Awesome. I love that. And your best piece of advice about building a subscription business inside a hardware company? 
don't start with business plans, start with testing and learn. Test and learn. I love it. Mylene, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. It's been a pleasure and a great learning experience for me to talk to you. That was Mylene Jappé, Director of Everything as a Service for Acer. For more about Mylene and about Acer, go to acer.com. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Mylene, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Acer, Mylene, everything as a service in this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Thank you.